This is Tempest Tossed, Conversations on Migration and Mobility, and I'm Alex Alenikov. So everybody's talking about the wall. It's occupied all the space on immigration for the last few weeks, Donald Trump's wall. And we know what to say about it. We know that there's no emergency. We know that it's not likely to stop drugs from coming into the country. We know that it was not necessary to prevent the caravan uh, from entering uh, the United States. We know that apprehensions at the border Uh, have gone down by 90% for Mexicans over the last 20 or 30 years. Uh, So there's no need for the wall, and I think that's been pretty well established. And there's certainly no reason to shut down the government uh, to the extent it harms 800,000 government workers and their families and and other businesses that depend uh, on them. We've suggested in earlier podcasts a set of solutions, including additional aid for the region, uh, regional asylum processing, improved U.S. asylum processing, and perhaps even a visa program for Salvadorans, Guatemalans, and Hondurans with family members in the United States or particular humanitarian needs. So there are ways to take care of this problem without a wall. And maybe there's even one tiny silver lining in this ridiculous and harmful obsession with the wall. It has actually crowded out a number of other bad policy proposals that the administration would like to pursue, like cuts in legal immigration. And maybe if Donald Trump gets his wall, he'll forget about the rest. Or maybe not. But one thing is for sure, whatever policies are adopted, they're going to face stiff and serious challenges in court. And I think this is really the untold story of the immigration policy battles. Every major policy decision, every new rule announced by the administration has been challenged in court by talented and dedicated lawyers from around the country. And to a significant and unexpected degree, they've been successful in reversing decisions or putting them on hold. And I say unexpected because before Trump, courts had generally given the president very wide discretion in fashioning immigration rules. They, the courts would say that this is part of the foreign affairs of the United States and they shouldn't get involved or immigration is so closely related to U.S. sovereignty that it's inappropriate uh, for courts to tell the president what to do. But since Trump, courts have shown a decided willingness to enter this area and to tell the president no again and again. So I've used for the title of this episode of Tempest Tossed the well-known line uh, from Shakespeare from Henry VI, Part Two, said by Dick the Butcher, the first thing we do, let's kill all the lawyers. Now, my guess is this may have been said in the White House recently and not just pertaining to Michael Cohn, but to the lawyers who have stopped Trump on these immigration policies. Uh, I'm also reminded of a scene out of Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, uh, where Butch and the kid are being uh, pursued by by a law enforcement posse, and they climb a mountain, they look back, and they see they're after them. They climb another mountain, they look back, they see they're still after them. Paul Newman turns to, to Robert Redford and repeatedly says, Who are those guys? They're beginning to get on my nerves. My guess is that uh, 
Donald Trump uh, and Stephen Miller may be saying the same thing. Who are those guys? Who are those lawyers uh, who have been able to stop a lot of what we have tried uh, to do? Well, I want to talk about who those guys are today and how they've been able to stop or prevent some of the worst abuses of the Trump administration, from child separation to the ending of the DACA program, uh, to policies aimed at hurting sanctuary cities. And and on the line today is uh, Peter Margulies, who's a professor of law at Roger Williams University uh, School of Law. Peter, welcome. Thanks, Alex. Glad to be here. It's great to have you. And I, I want to talk first uh, uh, about three of the major Trump policies and the court challenges that came after these policies were announced. And in, uh, in two, the lawyers were totally successful, and in the last, a little bit less successful. We'll get to that as we go through. So let's start with perhaps the most notorious, and, and that's the child separation policy. This came about because of Trump's decision to criminally prosecute people who entered uh, the border illegally. And once they were in the criminal process, the government decided to take their kids away from them. Uh, and several thousand children were were separated and sent around the country. Peter, do you want to describe, describe briefly the, the litigation that uh, followed this decision and what the result uh, in the courts were? Sure, Alex. Th- that's a, a case in which the ACLU first represented a mom from the Congo, which is a notoriously war-torn region of the world. She came over here and applied for asylum, saying she couldn't go back to the Congo. She'd be killed. She came over here with her young child, and she ended up being separated from her child for five months. And the district judge in that case, Dana Sabraw from California, heard the ACLU's argument on behalf of this mom, as well as hundreds of other parents who ended up in the same boat once the administration's family separation policy kicked in. In this case, the ACLU, represented by one of its excellent immigration attorneys, Legal Earn, who's been in this field for over 25 years, they got a chance to tell the judge why the government was wrong. And they used two methods for doing that, one of which is to argue on the law that this is a fundamental interference with family integrity, with the right to have an intact family that the Constitution guarantees in our due process clause. The second piece of it was using narratives that were appealing not just to the judge, but also to the general public. So the narrative of seeing kids in cages separated from their parents was a vital part of the advocacy of the ACLU here. And that helped turn the tide in terms of getting a good result for the court and eventually getting the policy reversed. So what did the court rule? The court ruled that the government's policy of separating families was a violation of this right to family integrity. Uh, and then the parties negotiated. Uh, the, the government could have tried to appeal this ruling to uh, upper-level appellate courts and eventually to the Supreme Court. And frankly, the Supreme Court, they might have had success because of the tradition of deference that you've mentioned. But instead, the government, because of the widespread public outcry that was fueled in part by the narrative of kids in cages that the ACLU had very artfully and passionately put before the public, the parties ended up settling. The government just couldn't face the political blowback from that narrative. So let's talk about the the so-called DACA cases. DACA was a program of the Obama administration that 
We gave temporary status to children who came to the U.S. at a young age without documents, but had grown up here and went to school here and either were in school or had recently graduated. And when Trump came in, he announced an end to DACA, saying that it was beyond the president's authority, an interesting claim for a president who's claimed so much authority now in the area. What happened to his attempt to try to end DACA? DACA, too, has been held up in the lower courts, which have really become kind of gatekeepers for the rule of law, Alex. So there's litigation that started in the fall of last year, 2017, soon after Trump said he would end the program. In these cases, the uh, lawyers who included folks like Munir Ahmad, who's a clinical professor at Yale, were again very, very skilled in blending narratives and legal doctrine. So here, the narrative is about the dreamers, that these kids came over here as kids through no fault of their own, it was their parents' decision to come here. These kids had basically become the personification of the American dream. I was on a panel with a DACA recipient last fall. This guy was a computer programmer. He was a lot smarter than I was. I need to tell you that, Alex. Uh, and he could give so much to this country if this country would only have the good sense to let him stay here permanently. So Trump wants to get these people out, wants to end this this status that they have, this benefit they have. And judges, I think, reacted to that unfairness, also reacted to the lack of an adequate explanation from the Trump administration about why they were doing this. So it's the mix of things, the the reliance of these DACA kids on having a stable place in this country, the skilled legal arguments, the missteps by the Trump administration, all that led to nationwide injunctions, uh, basically judges calling a halt to the end of the program, allowing the program to continue, at least insofar as it allows people who are still already in the program to renew their benefit. Peter, in both these cases, you've mentioned both the law and then the narrative, the narrative in the child separation policy of the cruelty of separating parents from kids, uh, and in the DACA case, the narrative of the dreamers. Now, this isn't the way the law is supposed to work, is it? I mean, we got rules and courts are supposed to apply the law as it is. How can it be that the narrative, the public story told by the lawyers, could actually influence how the courts here are ruling? Well, there, there are a couple of explanations for that. First, in a sense, that's all that, that the lawyers have always done. Lawyers are always storytellers. And you see that in, in most cases. Judges uh, uh, respond to stories because judges are human. And all humans respond to stories and images. What's happened that's made it even more compelling today is that we live in such a wired society. Uh, so we all check our phones you know, every couple of minutes. We check our Twitter feed. And lawyers here have had to be not just legal advocates, but they've really become social celebrities, uh, almost like the Oprah and Dr. Phil of uh, the legal universe. But Peter, let, let's. I want to get to a third set of cases, which went a little less favorably for the advocates, even though there was a rather strong narrative, and that is the, the Muslim ban cases. Well, one of the first things that Donald Trump did after coming into office was to issue an executive order uh, that banned uh, people coming from uh, Muslim, so-called Muslim countries, uh, from coming to the United States. Uh, this sparked, as I think everyone will remember, protests, spontaneous protests at airports and across the country, and, and, and a number of lawsuits. Uh, the executive order went through three different versions and eventually got to the Supreme Court. What, what happened there? In the Supreme Court, unfortunately, and I say unfortunately because I 
was one of the lawyers participating in the case. There were hundreds. I wrote an amicus brief with a wonderful law professor from Penn State, Shobu Wadia, and the great law firm Wilmer Hale. Uh, the Supreme Court, though, bought into a different narrative. And, and that is the potential Achilles heel of a lot of these cases. You can end up getting a little too infatuated with your own narrative, your own story, and you forget that not everyone is listening to that same story. So the Supreme Court bought into that familiar narrative of deference that you mentioned, Alex. They said this is just traditional garden variety foreign policy and national security in which the president should really be able to do what he wants. But uh, it, it, the travel van cases went through uh, a number of iterations because the executive order uh, did as well. And throughout that time, or much of that time, there was a an injunction, a, a prohibition on the government enforcing the ban. Is that correct? So there was some slight victory here for the lawyers? Well, it was the more than slight, in fairness, because the, the lawyers were able to say that uh, there were people, particularly in the first iteration of the travel ban, who were victimized by it, who shouldn't have been, even if you read the law most generously to the president. So, for example, initially it appeared as if lawful permanent residents of the United States who had happened to leave the country on some kind of trip abroad just for a vacation with their family, say, would be kept out of the country because of the first travel ban. It also seemed like students who were returning to the country for a spring semester in college after a trip abroad to see family. They would also be kept out. And judges rightly reacted very strongly against that. So we really have made a promise to these folks to let them come in. We don't want to play gotcha with their lives. And the chaos at the airport played into that. It just didn't seem like the way we should run a railroad. Uh, here, too, there was great public organization. So it's the public that was mobilized by lawyers and to some extent came out on its own. So you had hundreds of people at airports protesting, saying, let these folks back in. So here again, the ACLU went into court the day of the travel ban, like the next day. And they were in court on a Saturday night telling a judge in Brooklyn about how this travel ban was against everything the United States stand for. So the lawyers were quick. They had a story to tell. They had public support. And as a result, they helped thousands of people. So, Peter, I want to go through a, uh, what I'll call a lightning round here. I'll mention a, a couple of Trump policies, and if you could just, in a sentence or two, say, where are we in the courts on this? So, on sanctuary cities, the Trump administration tried to impose new rules and threatened to take away federal funding from so-called sanctuary cities. What happened? In that case, there are a number of courts that have said to the government, you got to stop this. Uh, we're not going to impose these conditions on uh, federal funds. So sanctuary cities from Los Angeles to Chicago or Philadelphia don't have to comply with conditions. They don't have to meekly supply immigration with the addresses of all the people they pick up for minor crimes like drunk driving. Uh, they can let those people go through the system. Uh, and if they're going to be released, they'll be released without being held for the benefit of immigration authorities. Okay. On the uh, asylum ban, uh, what I mean by this is the presidential proclamation followed by regulations of the Department of Homeland Security and the Attorney General that said that people who were caught between official uh, border entry points would not be eligible for asylum. What happened there? In that case, uh, a federal district court in California 
has ordered the government to stop this practice nationwide. And it did so because the statute itself is clear. The statute has said you can apply for asylum whether or not you're at a designated point of entry. All right, another one. Uh, Attorney General, former Attorney General Sessions issued a, a decision that severely limited the ability of women who were victims of domestic violence to uh, get asylum in the United States. What's happened there? Well, that's a case of a matter of AB, where Attorney General Sessions said that if you're a victim of private violence, you basically have no chance to get asylum. Uh, and in that case, uh, there's a, a ruling called Grace versus Nielsen in a Washington, D.C. District Court by Judge Sullivan. It's also had some role in some of the, the Mueller cases, where Judge Sullivan has said uh, this policy is illegal, that we have to return to a policy where we're broader and more open and expansive about allowing victims of private violence to apply for asylum. Uh, so, Peter, I want to take a step back and th think about all the, the cases you've described to us, because it really seems like a, quite a string of victories uh, for the lawyers here and for the immigrants they represent. Uh, the child separation policy was declared unconstitutional. It's not in effect. Uh, the ending of the DACA program was declared illegal, and that's not in effect. Um, sanctuary cities and the asylum ban at the southwest border and the Attorney General Sessions' decision on uh, ending domestic violence claims to get asylum on attempts to detain kids and families in all those areas, uh, uh, Trump has been told no. Uh, and even on the Muslim ban case, it took uh, three executive orders before they got it right, barely uh, upheld by a narrow majority in the Supreme Court. Uh, and even during that time, as you noted, thousands of people were able to come into the country. So do you think, in effect, that this has really been uh, – that this has really had an effect on the ability of Trump to carry out his immigration policies? Or has there been so much else going on in other parts of the immigration area this really hasn't uh, put a dent in the administration's efforts? Well, Alex, I mentioned earlier this is a narrative, and we don't really know how it turns out. Right. Uh, there have been very encouraging signs because the lawyers have been persistent. Uh, but I'm certainly watching the asylum ban case to see what happens with that. I'm watching the Sanctuary Cities case and DACA. Uh, I continue to hope in DACA that Congress will end up resolving this through providing protection. Uh, and so Congress is, as you said, is sort of an absent player, and we want to see Congress involved. What has happened with DACA maybe is that the lawyers have played for time to allow Congress to try to weigh in. Uh, and to some extent, this has all been playing for time. Uh, it would be nice to see the Supreme Court definitively say the president lacks the power to do something. Uh, I hope they'll take the opportunity to do that in the asylum ban case. Uh, but again, the conclusion of this story has yet to be written. Um, of course, the, the, the lawyers are successful only to the extent that judges uh, buy their arguments. Are, are there uh, things that Trump has done that have annoyed the judges other than simply issuing uh, these policies? What else might account for the judges in this area of law where they're traditionally so deferential uh, to the executive branch for them to over and over again say to Trump, you can't do that? Well, in addition to just looking at the law, which is what we want judges to do, again, judges are human, and I think they've responded to Trump's frontal attacks on the judiciary. Remember, during the campaign, Trump talked about distinguished federal judge Curiel and referred to him as a Mexican, while Judge Curiel is a native-born American, happened to be adjudicating a case on Trump University. 
since then, Trump has also continued on that focus. He's attacked the Ninth Circuit uh, for allegedly being partisan. In the asylum ban case we've been talking about, uh, he said that the judge was, in quotes, an Obama judge. And that led to a rebuke from Chief Justice Roberts, who usually tries to stay out of these matters. But Chief Justice Roberts felt the need to say, no, there are no Obama judges or Trump judges. There are only federal judges who apply the law. I think the Supreme Court will also feel some pressure to demonstrate it's not anyone's flunky or toady. It's there to apply the law as an independent branch of government. You know, but I'm skeptical. Some, you know, for Justice Roberts to say judges just apply the law. I think what you've tried to show us throughout this conversation is, in fact, judges are people too, and they they respond in narratives. They respond when they're attacked by the president and the like. So, is it really accurate to say they're just applying the law here? And and what does that mean about Roberts' statement? Maybe what Roberts is really saying is, if you you kick us, we may kick back. Well, I, I think that Roberts is someone who does value the court as an institution. He values equilibrium in U.S. society, so you don't have moves that are too far to the left or right. I think that's one reason he wrote two very important decisions on the Affordable Care Act, uh, saying, one, that it was constitutional as an exercise of the taxing power, and two, that the government's definition of healthcare exchanges was correct, and that allowed the Affordable Care Act to continue. Uh, and I think he'll bring that same understanding to bear in immigration cases. Of course, it's hard to predict how it'll come out, how the court will come out in a particular case. But I do think Roberts is concerned about not letting the president become the force in American society. That's not what the framers wanted. They wanted three equal branches of government. And I think Roberts will police that pretty faithfully. Well, and then uh, it really will be raised if the wall uh, issue goes to the courts, because if the president decides to declare an emergency uh, and say that's the justification uh, for for taking money from other federal programs and building a wall with it, the court is then going to have to decide whether or not this is, in fact, an emergency. And it's the kind of thing courts really don't like to decide. How do, how do you see that coming out if we face that? I'm actually more optimistic about that than some folks, because if you look at the backdrop of history in the steel seizure case during the Korean War, President Truman tried to seize the steel mills. He said the war effort required that. The court rejected that rationale. They said this is beyond the president's authority. Uh, I think the court will look at the statutes here, which say you can reassign funds if it is based on military necessity. There is no military necessity in this case. In fact, when it comes to action on the border, the military, by law, has no law enforcement rule whatsoever. It has to stay away. It has to have merely an indirect role. So the statutes require that uh, diversion of funds be essential for the military performance role. I don't think that the Trump administration can make that showing. I think the courts will hold it to that showing. So that's why I feel ultimately if there is an emergency declared, the court will roll that back. So, Peter, this has been a really interesting review of these cases, and, and uh, maybe it won't end uh, all lawyer jokes that we lawyers uh, hear from time to time, but it, but it certainly is a recognition in this current historical moment that when you have an administration that's just hell-bent on stigmatizing, even demonizing immigrants, and a Congress that really has been unwilling to provide the proper checks and balances that are part of our constitutional system, that the courts can and, and must play a vital role, and that requires the kind of 
uh, effective litigation strategy that we've been able uh, to talk about today. So I want to thank you. Thank you, Alex. Our guest has been uh, Peter Margulies, a professor at the Roger Williams University School of Law. Uh, if you've liked what you've heard today, please subscribe to Tempest uh, Tossed. Uh, tell your friends, tell your family, help us build our listener base. Thanks. Thanks.